Well, good, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to get to Luke chapter 22, Luke 22, starting in verse 14. Luke 22, starting in verse 14 is going to be our central passage for the day. Whenever we were kids, we played this game that goes by the common title of Keep Away. You may have called it something different, but for the sake of our gathering today, we'll go by the name Keep Away. Um, and so we play this game, Keep Away, and the title of the game makes it pretty obvious what the intent of the game is. There are three or more people that are participating in this game, two of which are on the outside, one of which is in the middle, and the point is to keep this object, generally a ball, away from the person in the middle, hence the name Keep Away. If I'm giving you knowledge today, I don't know where you've been, but Keep Away, this is the game. And so the intention is to throw it, roll it, do whatever you have to do to keep this object away from the person in the middle. But the person in the middle is not just destined, banished to the middle forever. In fact, they can get out of the middle if they capture the object that's being kept away from them. And if they capture the object that's being kept away from them, they get out of the middle. And the game's not over in that moment. Rather, they switch places with someone. Who do they switch places with? They switch places with the one that failed. The one that failed, had a bad throw, couldn't catch, missed the ball, whatever. It is their failure that lands them in the middle. And it is their failure that actually makes them the person that is now being kept away from. Why do I tell you that? Because I just wonder if for some of you, when it comes to how you think about how Jesus thinks about you, you think, you think you're in the middle of this cosmic game of keep away. And you're the one in the middle. And it's your failure that landed you there. And you look on the outside at everybody that feels like Jesus extends invitation to them. Jesus longs to be around them. Jesus is giving them what you long for. But because of your failure, you're here. And Jesus is doing everything that he can to keep away what you long for. And if it just wasn't for your failure, you wouldn't be here. People that have it all together, people that do right, oh, they're out here with Jesus. But because you have baggage and you have failure, you think you're in the middle and they're playing keep away. What I hope that you see today as we look at Luke chapter 22 is that the reality of Jesus is that he extends the invitation of relationship. He extends the invitation to nearness, to intimacy, to all kinds of people with all kinds of failure, all kinds of failure. So if you have your Bibles and you're open to Luke 22, uh, we are gonna read Luke 22, 14 through 23. But if you could stand in honor of reading God's word, we say this phrase at the end of our reading, the very words just as a means to separate God's words that are perfect from mine that are not. Luke 14, starting in verse, excuse me, Luke 22, starting in verse 14. This is what the word of God says. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the coming of the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. You can have a seat. 
it's probably helpful to gain some of the context of what's leading up to this moment and maybe define some of the terms that we see here. So the context is this, Jesus has moved into Jerusalem now uh, and he's told his boys, hey, go into the town. There's gonna be a guy, he's got a jar of water on his head. Tell him the teacher needs a room. He'll know exactly what you're talking about. Go up there, prepare the room for what? They're going to prepare the room to have the Passover meal. You see that there in verse 15. And he said to them, this Jesus, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So maybe for some of us who have been in church for a little bit, you know exactly what the Passover meal is. Maybe for some of you who've been in church for a little bit, you have no idea what the Passover meal is. And so maybe it's just helpful to explain what exactly we mean when we see the word Passover there. So if you can think all the way back to the book of Exodus, God speaks to Moses and he says, hey, bro, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And Moses is like, but uh, you know, God, I don't, you're just like, I don't, you know, I don't speak so good, God. And so he's like, okay, fine, I'm gonna put, send Aaron with you, but you're gonna go and you're gonna tell Pharaoh, let my people go because Egypt has enslaved the Israelites. They are enslaved to them. He's, Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell them, let my people go. And so he does this, he journeys to Pharaoh and he says, hey man, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, I'm not gonna do that. He's like, all right, man. And so God sends a plague. And this pattern goes on for 10 plagues. Hey, let my people go, no plague. Hey, let my people go, no plague. On and on and over and over. This goes all the way for 10 plagues. And it's the 10th plague that we actually get this festival called Passover from. The 10th plague, as you probably well know, is the death of the firstborn. That God says, I'm gonna send this plague. I'm gonna sweep through the land and I'm gonna wipe out all of the firstborn in the land. My wrath is going to be poured out on the land. This is the 10th plague. And so he instructs Moses and the people of God, if you are to be spared from my wrath in the death of the firstborn, take a one-year-old unblemished male lamb, kill it and take his blood and put it on the doorpost of your house. And when I see the blood, it will be a sign to me as I pass through the land that I will pass over that house. Catch it, because they are covered by the blood of a lamb. And those are the ones that will be spared from the wrath of God. And so God, in that moment, comes to the land takes out all the firstborn except for those that are covered by the blood of a lamb and frees the people of Egypt. And this, this is the meal that Jesus and his disciples have gathered to eat. This is the meal that the Jewish people would gather once a year for a week to celebrate. And when they gather to eat, what they're gathering to do is look back and remember, our God has delivered us from enslavement to the enemy and he has spared us from his wrath. And over and over again, year after year, they will gather and they will eat and they will remember our God delivered us from enslavement to the enemy and he spared us from his wrath. And they're gathering for that moment right here. But they're not only gathering to look back and say, look, God did deliver us from the enemy and God did spare us from his wrath, but rather they're looking forward as well. Yes, they've looked back to say God did and God did spare us from his wrath, but now we're looking forward and one day God will deliver us through the sending of his Messiah. And Jesus is going to use an old picture to illustrate a new and future reality. You see, he's pulling on all that they would be remembering in the moment of Passover. God has delivered us from the oppression of the enemy, enslavement to the enemy. 
and God has spared us from his wrath. He's pulling on all of that when he says in verse 17, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus takes this old reality, this old picture of Passover to institute and illustrate something new and future. How does he do it? So he, he takes these elements. This is from commentators. He takes these elements and, 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 and uses what was there for the Passover to communicate something new. And so he picks up the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this right here, this bread that we were gonna eat for this Passover meal, something old was being communicated here. I'm telling you something new is now being communicated. You know the Messiah that you longed for when you took the Passover meal? He is here, I am him. And I'm going to take this bread and I'm gonna tell you this is like my body that's going to be broken on the cross. And it's for you. And in the same way, he picked up the cup and he passed it around and he said, this cup right here, it's the blood of the new covenant and it's going to be spilled on the cross and it's for you. He's taking this old picture to communicate something new and future. And you get that language there in verse 20, new covenant. Maybe we're not familiar with the meaning of covenant. So here's a simple definition. Trent Hunter and Stephen Wellham define it like this, that covenants are simply God's way of relating with his people. They're his way of God relating with his people. And, and for a Jew, as they hear the words new covenant, perhaps alarm bells are going off in their brain. They're like, I've heard this before. Somebody before us has said this. We've been taught this before. If they were paying attention to the prophets, they're going to remember, oh, I remember Jeremiah said this. It says it this in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, Passover. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the new covenant. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. No longer is it going to be written on tablets of stone, as so many have said, but it's going to be written on their hearts. It's going to, something's going to happen under the new covenant that will no longer make people striving to obey, to be near to God, but rather we, God will come near to them, transform them from the inside out into the people that want to obey God. I have a friend who says it like this, God is not interested in our begrudging obedience. He's interested in transforming us into the kind of people that naturally desire to obey. And this is what God is doing in the new covenant, giving us new hearts. Verse 34 of Jeremiah 31, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And the people of God, the Jewish people would have known this was a covenant promise that's coming. And Jesus sits down with his boys in this upper room for the Passover meal, breaks the bread and says, that day is today. The new covenant promise is going to be fulfilled before your eyes in a few moments because I'm going to go to the cross and I'm gonna take the wrath of God for your sin. And I'm gonna bear all of it. And for all who look to me, catch this, for all who are covered under the blood of the lamb, 
They will be delivered from enslavement to the enemy and spared from the wrath of God that's coming. And this is what Jesus is doing in the room. He's breaking the bread and he's sending the cup and he's telling them this covenant is here. The thing that you long for, Messiah, he's here and I am him. And like they looked back in the Passover to remember that God delivered and God spared and looked forward to the day that God would deliver from the Messiah. So we do the same thing in what we call the Lord's Supper. That's this moment right here. We get to the Lord's Supper from passages just like this in the Gospels. And maybe for you and your tradition, you didn't call it the Lord's Supper. You grew up calling it communion or you grew up calling it the Eucharist. Honestly, I don't care what you grew up calling it. I do care how you observe it. Because let me just speak for me. I can flippantly come into the moment of observing the Lord's Supper. I can lack thought, I can lack reflection, it can be no big deal. I'll just take the little plastic cup, unpeel the first layer, not the second one because the juice is there. And if I unpeel the first one, I'll spill some juice but not get the bread and I don't wanna be out of order. And so then I'm gonna take the first one off and get this really dry, thin, like is this actually bread or is this like punches of styrofoam? I don't know where you guys get this from. And so, and so we, you, you get into that moment and you just kind of move through it, no big deal. Yeah, body of Christ broken for you or whatever Pastor Brian says up here, take it, drink it, put it back in here, make sure that somebody gets this to throw it away. And we'll do it a couple more times throughout the year. And my concern is this. It's that in moments where we, where I, participate in the Lord's Supper like that, we do a disservice to ourselves. Because what is happening when we gather to take the Lord's Supper, it's much like what's happening when the people of God would gather to take the Passover meal. We eat this meal, not for tradition's sake, but to remember our God has delivered us from enslavement to the enemy and he spared us from his wrath toward our sin. And we cannot wait for the day when he will return, rip open the skies, set up his kingdom, and we will declare our God has delivered us one time for all time. And this is what's happening in the Lord's Supper. This is more than little cup, styrofoam wafer. Okay, time to go home. It's far more significant than that. It's a way for us to remember our God has delivered us. He has spared us. He's extended grace to us. And I said to you that the Lord's Supper is this gathering where we don't just look back, but it's also this gathering where we look forward. What's interesting with these pictures is it, the Passover was a gathering around the table to remember and to look forward. The Lord's Supper is a gathering around the table to remember and look forward. But check this out. There will be a day that comes in Revelation 19 when every one of the people of God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, we will gather around the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb and declare, our God has delivered us. And we will long for that day until it comes. We will long for that day until it comes. This is the picture of what's happening in the room. Jesus is using something old to communicate and illustrate something that's new, namely the new covenant that's happening in his blood with his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. And all who look to him, all who look to him 
and communicate the same thing, the same kind of thing that John the Baptist said when they saw Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All who look to Jesus are welcomed into God's family. That's what's happening in the room here in Luke 22. But maybe it's important for us at this moment to ask a question that we've asked so many times in this series, Jesus at the Table. Who is at the table with Jesus? Who are the people that's at the table with Jesus? And we get it explicitly there in verse 14 of Luke 22. And when the hour came, he, that's Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. Who's with Jesus? His disciples, the 12, they are with him. So some of you have that picture in your head of who that is. I wanna highlight three people that are in this crowd. And I want you to picture Jesus taking the bread, picking it up, breaking it, and he begins to pass it around the table and says, this is my body, it's broken for you, take it and eat it. And he takes the cup and he lifts it up and he says, this is my blood in the new covenant, it's spilled out for you, take it and drink. And that passes around the table and the bread in the cup stops at Thomas. Now you know Thomas, He gets a famous nickname that forever, for history, he gets the worst nickname. You know him as Doubting Thomas. And you get that from a scene in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is post-resurrection. Jesus has died. He has risen from the dead. Some of his disciples saw him. They're like, bro, you are not gonna believe this. Our Messiah, he's back. Dude, he got up from the dead. And Thomas is like, not so sure about that. And for some of you, you identify a lot with that. Because when it comes to Christianity, people give that message to you. People like me, people at your work, people that are your friends in your neighborhood, they give the message of Christianity to you, that God created us for a relationship with him. We have broken that because of sin, and yet he sent his son to die so that we could come back into relationship. You're like, I'm not so sure. I've got some doubts. But check this out. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with him. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, which by the way, is the appropriate response if you happen to appear in a locked room. Because if somebody appeared in a locked room in your house, you'd be like, what is happening? And they just seem to say like, it's okay, peace be with you, right? It's just the appropriate response from Jesus. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Notice, Jesus doesn't step away from Thomas in his doubt. He moves toward him. With his doubt, I wanna see the scars. I wanna touch your hands and I wanna touch your side. And Jesus doesn't shake his head at Thomas and say, you couldn't have more faith than that, Thomas? Well, that's not what Jesus does. He actually moves toward Thomas in his doubt and says, Don't disbelieve, believe. And so to you who find yourself with doubt, Jesus doesn't separate himself from you. The truth of that reality is he actually moves toward you to meet you in your doubt and extends invitation to you just like he does to Thomas around the table. This is for you, come and believe, come and believe. 
And so how does Thomas respond? And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so the bread and the cup, they stop at Thomas. And Jesus says to them and to him, this is for you. The invitation is for you. Come and believe. And so the bread stops at a doubter. And then it continues to move around the table. And it goes from a doubter to a denier. And the bread stops at Peter and the cup stops at Peter. If you're familiar with your Bible at all, you know that Peter's famous for a lot of things. Some really great things and some really not great things. This moment is perhaps one of them that he's most famous for in Luke 22, 54 through 62. Then they seized him and led him away. That's they seized Jesus. He's been arrested at this point. Bringing him into the high priest's house and Peter was following him at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him. I mean, the moment was this, like they're around a fire and you know, like the light around a fire is not super great. So it's kind of like shadowy, kind of flickery as the light kind of bounces off of Peter's face. And, and the girl's doing like one of those things when you see somebody in public that you think you know, but you're not sure if you know them. It's like, she's like, do I, do I know you? Like, don't lock eyes with them because it'd be really awkward if we lock eyes and I'm like staring at you, but do I know you? And so finally she just says something to him. This man also was with him. And what does Peter do in verse 57? But he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with him for he too is Galilean. I mean, you're from where he's from. You've gotta be with him. Verse 60, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And the bread gets passed and the cup gets passed and it stops at Peter and Jesus knowing full well that Peter will deny him, not one time, not two times, but three times. He will tell him later in Luke 22, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, no, bro, I would never do that to you, man. And Jesus, I'm sure it's like, okay, Peter, whatever. And so he passes the bread and he passes the cup to Peter, the one who will deny him three times. And he extends the invitation and says, Peter, this is for you. Come and believe. My body will be broken for you. My blood will be shed for you. This new covenant is available to you. Come and believe. And the bread passes and the cup passes. And it goes from a doubter to a denier and it stops at a betrayer and it stops at Judas. Judas is famous for this scene that's found in Luke 22, three through six, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Judas is famous for one thing and one thing only in the scriptures, betraying Jesus, going to the chief priests and saying, hey, you want, you want him? You want his head on a platter? I can give it to you. Let's figure out a way to do this and we will do it. And they pay him for it. And he sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 
And Jesus, knowing that Judas is at the table and that he will betray him. In fact, in Luke 22, he's going to say, woe to the man who betrays me. He knows it's gonna happen. He knows betrayal will happen. He knows that it's Judas, and yet he passes the bread and the cup, and it stops, and it's as if Jesus looks at Judas and says, this is for you, my broken body and my shed blood. It's for you. The invitation is to you. You too can come and believe. The new covenant promise is available to you too, if you'll believe. And for doubter and denier and betrayer, Jesus extends the invitation to all of them. This is for you. This is for you. This is for you. Knowing their failures, he doesn't play cosmic keep away with them. He doesn't put Peter in the middle and say, Peter, you're gonna blow this in a few days. So this isn't for you. We'll have it out here. You stay in there. He extends the invitation to them anyway. Come and believe. Come and believe. Come and believe. And so my point is this. If Jesus does that with them, knowing their failures and extends the invitation anyway, what do you think he does with you? And maybe you're here and you've tiptoed around Christianity, you've tiptoed around Jesus, and really you just looked at it and you're like, yeah, Katie, but you don't know, man. Like, I got some stuff. Like, if you saw the inside of my life, it's like, what's going on in there? And so certainly, Jesus doesn't extend invitation to people like me. Certainly, I'm the one on the middle, in the middle of this cosmic game of keep away, looking on the outside, like, look at all these people that have it together. I go to church sometimes and look around, all these people, they got their hands up, they got their eyes closed, they got it all together. And so maybe, maybe if I could just figure out how to get rid of my failure, Jesus would extend this invitation to you. But the truth of the Bible is that amidst your failure, Jesus extends the invitation to you, come and believe. In your failure, he's reaching to you saying, come and believe. This is my body. This is my blood. And it's for you. It's for you. Come and believe. And so I don't know what kind of stuff you brought in today. But I'm certain that Jesus will not be surprised by it. And will not withhold his invitation to come and believe because of it. Come and believe. Well, maybe you're in here and you're already a follower of Jesus. You're like, okay, this is great, okay? Like, I appreciate this. Uh, but what if I'm already a believer? Like, what if I've already accepted this invitation to come and believe? What does this have to do with me? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. When you fail as a follower of Jesus, when you blow it, what do you think Jesus thinks about you? Do you think that he wags his head in disappointment. I thought you were better than that. Get into the middle. Do you think that he separates in shame? Do you think that he looks at you and distances himself from you? I can't be around you. You failed me. Get into the middle. We will keep away this blessing from you. Some of you interact with Jesus just like that on a daily basis. When you blow it, you are strapped down by all this kind of guilt and not the good kind of guilt that leads you to repentance, but the bad kind of guilt that just sits in, that makes you sit in your shame. 
and you think you've now been distanced from Jesus and he's no longer extending that invitation to you. He's actually pulled it back and it's now keep away time because you've blown it. When the reality of this moment from Luke chapter 22 is, if he extended the invitation to you when you were busted and broken by your sin, he extends the invitation to you just the same today. Oh, believer in Jesus, you are just as in need of the gospel message today as you were at the time that you believed. And so when you as a follower of Jesus come to the Lord's table to take the bread and the cup, you remember my God delivered me from enslavement to the enemy and spared us from his wrath. And you need that tomorrow and the next day and the next day when you blow it. When I blow it with my kids, you know what I need? I need the broken body and shed blood of Jesus to come and meet me and Jesus to say to me, come and believe, this is for you, turn around. His invitation is repent, there's a broken body and there's shed blood for you, come and believe. So, oh, follower of Jesus, you have not advanced from the need for this message. You will need this for the rest of your life to preach it to yourself. When something goes sideways with your spouse, something goes sideways with your kids, when you think things that you shouldn't, when you say things that you shouldn't, when you go places that you shouldn't, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus gets extended to you and the invitation is turn around, come and believe. Turn around, come and believe. This is for you. This is for you. Jesus extends the invitation to relationship and intimacy to all kinds of people with all kinds of failure. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're here or watching online and you're not a follower of Jesus, you might identify with somebody who's just kind of tiptoed around Christianity for a bit. Maybe you thought you were disqualified because of your failures. The invitation to you is exactly as I said, come and believe. Maybe you identify with the words of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe that's what you say to God. You come and believe today. The invitation is to you. And maybe if you're in here and you're a follower of Jesus, Maybe you need to operate with him according to the Bible. And maybe you need to lay down the stuff that you have done, some sin that you have committed. You need to repent. That invitation is to you today. Turn around and come and believe. And maybe for others of you, that's not where you are. Rather, you're hearing this and you just wanna celebrate. And so what we're going to do is sing. And it would be appropriate. It would be extremely appropriate for you to shout God's praise because he has delivered us from slavery to the enemy and spared us from his wrath. So certainly he's worthy of our praise. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna respond however God leads you. Father, we're grateful to you that you extend this invitation. The broken body and the shed blood, it moves toward us. And for all those who believe, God, we are welcomed into relationship with you. That's a gift, God. We're grateful for it. Shape us because of it. Make us more like your son. Help us to believe it. 
We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand.